All right, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And as is so important when reading any passage of Scripture, any book really, it's important for us to keep the context in mind. And so in the flow of the way Matthew has organized his gospel, Jesus has just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that, Matthew noted that people were amazed that Jesus was teaching with authority. Not like their scribes, they said, but but his authority was different. It's like it was somehow vested in himself. Well, what Matthew then does as he arranges his story of Jesus and his presentation of the good news through Jesus is in the next two chapters, so chapter 8 and chapter 9, Matthew begins to present a series of snapshots that show Jesus's power and authority. And Matthew has arranged these snapshots in a very distinct sort of way. So let me give you a quick overview of Matthew chapters 8 and 9 so you can see how he has arranged these snapshots about Jesus' power and authority. What you get are you get three miracles or three healings, and then you get a short little section that gives some teaching on discipleship. Then you get three more miracles or healings, and then another little bit of teaching related to discipleship. Then you get three more miracles or healings, and then we get a summary and transition, which leads into the next big teaching block in chapter 10. And so three miracles and healings, teaching, three miracles and healing, teaching, three miracles, healings, summary and transition. And that's the way Matthew chapters eight and nine is organized. So that at least gives us a map for how to read it. And that's how we're going to organize our teaching through it as well. And so we're going to look at the first three healings in this recording. Then there'll be a short little section on teaching, and we'll take a little recording about that and so on. And so that helps us at least understand what's going on here. And all of this, remember, is aimed at really kind of... uh, laying out the nature of Jesus' authority that he taught with, that he lived with, that really characterized his ministry. And so chapter 8, verse 1 begins this way. It's the first miracle in the series of three, and it's the healing of a leper. And it says this, when Jesus came down from the mountain, that is the mountain on which he had been teaching. So Matthew intentionally connects it to that. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, let's talk first about leprosy. Here's a man with leprosy. He comes to Jesus, bows before him, and he he asks him to make him clean. And leprosy in the biblical text referred to various kinds of skin disease. Interestingly, it doesn't seem to be referring to what we call leprosy today or Hansen's disease. It referred to just various kinds of skin disease. You can read about it in Leviticus 13 and 14, and it actually describes what some of the kinds of symptoms might be for the diseases or ailments that were referred to by this word. And the Old Testament required a process of examination to determine if a skin disease was harmless or highly contagious. And if it was highly contagious, then the infected person was to be isolated and identifiable. And there are two key things to note about how the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament law, talked about this. One, the first thing to note is that based on the Old Testament law, 
Lepers were social outcasts who lived on the margins of society. They were richly unclean, and they could make other people richly unclean. And they were treated, therefore, almost like a walking corpse in the sense of being a risk to defilement. The second thing that's important to note is that, at least according to the Mishnah, and again, we don't know how early some of those traditions developed or not, but they didn't develop out of a vacuum. So uh, according to the Mishnah, uh, it suggests that leprosy was viewed as an affliction caused by God because of sin and therefore could only be cured by God. If that belief was uh, in play in Jesus' day, then that would suggest that this man at least views Jesus as vested with the very power of God to make him clean. So when he comes and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he likely is saying, I, I, I believe you have the very power of God to cleanse me from this disease. And how did Jesus respond to him? Well, here comes this man. He bows down before Jesus in a, a show of respect and honor. And Jesus says in verse three, Jesus reached out his hand, touched him saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now notice this. Here's a man that was richly unclean. He was supposed to announce his presence. He was supposed to stay away from people. He's living on the margins of society. He is literally an untouchable. You're, you can't touch him or else you're going to become unclean as well. And then you have to go through a process of ritual purification. But that does not stop Jesus. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. Jesus didn't just say the word, be cleansed. He touched him. How long had it been since this man had felt another human touch? But Jesus touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And rather than the uncleanness of the man defiling Jesus, ritually speaking, Jesus' power and his purity made this man clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed and left him. And then Jesus gave him some instructions. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. So don't go to see anyone else yet. Don't go tell anyone else what happened. But go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What Jesus is getting at is the Old Testament law that instructed a leper who had been healed to go and be examined by a priest, make sure that indeed they were healed and cleansed. If so, the priest declared them clean, an appropriate sacrifice was offered, and in this way the man could be restored to community life. And so even though Jesus could tell this man is excited and uh, rejoicing in the fact that he was cleansed, Jesus wants him to still go through the proper process so that he could actually be appropriately restored to community life and to religious life. From there, the story continues here in Matthew chapter 8 with another snapshot showing Jesus' authority. This time, it involves a centurion and his servant. Look what happens. Verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, so that's the city that's his hometown. We don't know exactly where the interaction with the leper took place, somewhere outside the city. So Jesus comes back into town. A centurion came to him, begging him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, terribly tormented. 
And so even though Jesus, according to Matthew, who has said it once, will say it again, focuses on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he still has regular interactions with non-Jews. And there's plenty that live in Capernaum. In fact, uh, as we noted when discussing Capernaum, that was actually one of the major reasons Jesus moved his base of operations there, is it would give him a chance to interact with a wider spectrum of people and model for his disciples how to do that. So here he interacts with a centurion. And a centurion was a key officer in the Roman army. Centurions commanded a century or about a hundred Roman soldiers. And they were one of the most critical tactical officers in the Roman military. The Roman legion was made up of six centuries, and therefore there would be six centurions that were part of that. And centurions tended to be veteran soldiers who were valued for their leadership, good judgment, and ability to command respect. Oftentimes, they stayed in an area for a long period of time, and it's not therefore surprising to us that many times in the New Testament, centurions are actually presented in a positive light. In fact, the very first Gentile in the book of Acts to come to faith in Jesus and be baptized into him is a Roman centurion named Cornelius. So here we have this centurion stationed in Capernaum, and uh, he has a servant who he values deeply, and this servant is paralyzed, and we learn from other gospel accounts that he actually is not just terribly tormented, but it seems like he's on the verge of death. And the way Matthew tells the story in his gospel is he just kind of summarizes the story and kind of compresses it all together. Luke fleshes out the story and helps us see that there's uh, a lot more going on here. In fact, the centurion himself doesn't even come. He sends some representatives. And then when Jesus gets close, he sends out another servant and says, I, I don't come to my house. Matthew summarizes all of that, which was very common in uh, retelling stories in their day. But if you want all the details, you can read Luke's account in Luke 7, verse 1 and following. And that will help you see the stuff that Matthew omits. So the centurion comes. He, his servant is paralyzed and in torment. He wants Jesus to help him. And what's Jesus' response? Well, look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus doesn't hesitate. He tells the guy, I will come. I will come to you. I will come to your house and I will heal him. Now think about this. This is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And Jesus is willing to go to his house, and not just for this high-ranking military officer, but to heal his servant. And Jesus says, I will come and I will heal him. What's the centurion's response to that? But the centurion replied, verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. So this centurion doesn't even think it's appropriate for him to welcome Jesus into his home. doesn't matter that he, in his cultural context, is a person of status or clout. He doesn't think it's appropriate for him to welcome Jesus into his home, which speaks highly of his respect for Jesus. He also probably understands Jewish sensibilities about all of this, because centurions tended to be stationed in a place for a fairly good length of time, which means he probably understands that for Jews to enter into a Gentile's home would render that Jew unclean because of his respect for Jesus. He doesn't want to risk that for Jesus. And so he's being considerate and respectful towards Jesus, a Jew, by saying this. 
And then he says something that actually indicates his confidence in Jesus' power and authority. He's already said that just say the word. But look how he explains that in verse 9. He says, For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so he wants Jesus to heal his servant. That's his request. Here's his confidence. His confidence is he knows how authority works, and he's confident that Jesus has authority over sickness, and therefore he can simply give a command, even from a distance, and sickness will obey. That's his confidence. That's what he's getting at here in verse 9. Just say the word, because I know how authority works. I got people that give me orders, I give other people orders, and in, in view of the way authority works, I take their orders, they take my orders. And again, recall how the Sermon on the Mount ended by Matthew stating that people were amazed that Jesus taught with authority. And that's the force of these miracles here. While they feel a little bit random, they're put together specifically to help us see uh, the nature of Jesus' authority. And this centurion has confidence in Jesus' authority. He's certain that all Jesus needs to do is simply give an order, just like the centurion gives orders, and it will be done. And how does Jesus respond to that? We'll look at verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following. So Jesus looks at the entourage around him and says, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So Jesus is completely amazed at how this person has complete confidence in Jesus' authority. And he praises the man publicly before all. The crowds around him, which are uh, going to be almost predominantly Jewish, and he commends this man saying that his faith is actually greater than the kind of faith that Jesus has seen among the Jewish people, uh, with anyone in Israel, that is among the Jews. This guy has greater faith than, than all you all there in Israel. And Jesus reflects on this and points out how in the kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, there will be people from all over the place because of their faith in Jesus. So look at verse 11. He says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're going to have people from all over the world, from the east, from the west, from everywhere, and in the great banquet in the age to come. That's the picture of reclining at table, this great banquet. This is what Jews look forward to as part of the picture of the world to come that they were waiting for. When the resurrection happens and there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs there, there's going to be many from east and west, from all over the place. But, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, that is, those who should have been most prepared, Jews primarily, and especially religiously observant and faithful Jews. That's the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness is sort of a picture or a description of judgment. Rather than going into the eternal and blessed kingdom of light, they are banished to the darkness out there in darkness, and where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which again seems to be a picture of sorrow and regret and resentment. And so here you have the sons of the kingdom, and they're going to miss out on the, the great banquet because they're not going to put their faith in Jesus. 
but you'll have people from east and west and all over the place that will put their faith in Jesus, just like this centurion, and they will actually get to participate in the great banquet in the age to come. And so Jesus then in verse 13 said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you just as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus just says the word, and at that moment, this centurion's servant is healed. Matthew continues his story. As we said, three miracles, and that's what we get here. One more specific miracle mentioned, and that happens in Capernaum at Peter's house. So when Jesus came into Peter's home, and Peter's home seems to have been where Jesus was staying in Capernaum. And so there we are in Capernaum, the hub of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, if you visit to Capernaum today, you can see the location that many people believe is Peter's home, the very house where this miracle happened, the very house where Jesus stayed. So Jesus comes into Peter's home and Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick in bed with a fever. Uh, what does this tell us about Peter? tells us he was married. He has a mother-in-law. So Peter is married and his wife's mom is sick in bed with a fever. And Jesus, according to verse 15, touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on them and served them. So she was so much better so quickly that she could immediately prepare a meal and take care of those in the house. What's the result of all of this? Well, Matthew gives a little summary statement in verses 16 and 17 that, again, is intended to help us see the power and the authority of Jesus. So the result, well, when evening came, they brought to him, that is to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. And so simply by speaking a word, he has authority over demons and, and the demon oppression and possession of people. And he healed all, all who were ill. And Matthew ties this general statement to what Isaiah said about the Messiah in Isaiah 53. So look at verse 17. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. He himself took our illnesses and he carried away our diseases. That's from Isaiah 53, 4. And Matthew frequently cites or alludes to Isaiah as a way to explain Jesus' identity and Jesus' ministry. And so, for example, in Matthew 1:23, we had Isaiah 7:14. In Matthew 3, 3, we had Isaiah 40, verse 3. In Matthew 4, 14 through 16, we had Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And then here, we get Isaiah 53, 4. It's going to actually occur a handful of times after this passage as well. And what Matthew wants us to see, really by doing this, is he wants us to see that Jesus is the one who is those themes and those clues and those hints that are embodied in the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah, are all reaching their culmination point in the man called Jesus. He is the one that they were waiting for, the one that was to come. And Isaiah 53, if you read it, the whole chapter, that is the most clear description in the Old Testament of what's going to happen to Jesus as Messiah throughout his ministry and particularly at the culmination of his ministry as he goes to the cross as well. And so this little summary statement here at the end of this first section in Matthew chapter 8 helps us see a key theme that Matthew wants us to learn. And that key theme is Jesus' compassion. It's not just Jesus' authority and power, it's Jesus' compassion that how he took upon himself 
our sickness and our diseases. In fact, when you read all of Isaiah 53, he takes on himself our sin and our punishment as well. And so what we see is that Jesus uses his power and authority for other people's good, not to serve himself, not to advantage himself, but to benefit other people by taking up their sicknesses, their weaknesses, their sins, their punishment, taking that all upon himself, and so that he uses his power and authority to serve and benefit other people. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible because of the generous support of dozens of people just like yourself. People who give $5, some give 50 some give more than that, some give it one time, some give it monthly. And if you have been impacted or blessed in any way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider joining the, that team of supporters And you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com. And there's a free ebook there. Uh, There is the study hub. And if you sign up for the study hub, uh, and you'll get bonus resources inside the hub. And that's a great way to support this ministry. You can also uh, just click the give button and you can set up a one time or a recurring monthly donation inside the give button as well. So thanks a ton for your support.